Welcome to the Global Robotic Assisted Surgery Podcast, or GRASP for short. We release weekly podcasts featuring insights from leading surgeons and other surgical professionals. Our host for today is Professor Hitendra Patel, who is a global key opinion leader in robotic assisted surgery, a global key opinion leader in telesurgery, and editor-in-chief of the World Journal of Clinical Oncology. We hope you enjoy the GRASP podcast. Welcome to the Global Robotic Assisted Surgery Podcast. I'm Professor Hitendra Patel, and I'm very grateful today to have Dr. Ilya Kova. Is that correct? That's perfect. <laughs> I'm good. Thank you for saying that. I try my best. Well, listen, thank you. It's a great pleasure to have you on today. Um, uh, most of our audience first like to just know a little bit about uh, the surgeon and how they got to where they got to. So do you want to just tell me a little bit about how you've got to where you are right now? And then we'll, we'll drill down off of that. Certainly. Well, by walking sometimes. No, I kid. Uh, so it's, I've taken a little bit of a circuitous route, honestly, to surgery and specifically to bariatric and general surgery, as well as robotic surgery. I initially wanted to be a lawyer uh, starting off. That's what my, my mother is. Nobody in my family is in medicine by a long shot. So everyone was kind of stunned when I when I said I wanted to go to medical school. And uh, anyway, and I certainly did not want to be a surgeon at the beginning of that either. I wanted to do a tropical diseases or neurology or something, something completely different. And it was honestly a series of falling forward many times that I ended up in surgery. So uh, very uh, lucky to have ended up here. And even bariatric surgery itself uh, was not my first passion. Transplant surgery was. So <laughs> it's really not, not the most straightforward way to get here. But, but uh, very lucky to end up in bariatric surgery for a number of reasons. One, it's an area with a lot of really interesting innovation. Um, it is some of the most forward thinking, I think, of the surgeons in terms of what kinds of tools can be used to help our patients. We are just scratching the surface of understanding why some of the therapeutic uh, technologies that we have do work currently and developing others and certainly customizing uh, treatment plans to patients and understanding that it's more of a spectrum of a disease than it is just a one done approach. And um, also we have really been at the forefront of technology as it applies to surgery and the practice of medicine. Um, in fact, some of the first laparoscopic surgeries and some of the first robotic surgeries were done in the practice of bariatric surgery and foregut surgery. So I'm really excited to be um, at the intersection of a lot of really interesting technology, but also I think social impact as well. Wow. I mean, I don't know where to start now. You wanted to be a lawyer and then you didn't become a lawyer and then you became a surgeon and then maybe maybe you're a neurologist as well as a surgeon. <laughs> wow that's amazing what an amazing career and so well, thank you already i mean it's that's, that's phenomenal and now there was something else very interesting about your work um to do with or efficiency and really caught my eye and um can you just tell us a bit a little bit about that Certainly, yes. So you wouldn't necessarily think of surgery and efficiency in the same breath necessarily. And that really might be part of the problem. When we walk into an OR setting, at least I remember when I first did, I was actually a little bit surprised at how low tech it seemed to me. I thought, man, there would be robots and wizard wizardry basically abounding everywhere and everything would be really high tech and it would look like a spaceship and everything would be super well organized. And then the reality is there's actually a lot of manual process. There's a lot of inefficiency that contributes to surgical delay and to 
to maybe not the best way of taking care of patients. And this obviously reflects on the bottom line for a hospital, right? So in terms of money and um, both profit lost, but also the cost of actually providing the care that we do, um, certainly it has an impact on staff frustration, which when we're talking about things like staffing in general, which is a global problem, I think now in surgery and healthcare in general, um, frustration and burnout, I don't think are things to overlook. Um, people's quality of life and satisfaction as they're working is a really big deal. But then ultimately we're surgeons. We wouldn't be surgeons if we didn't care about our patients probably above everything else. And delays in the OR also um, cause worse outcomes for patients. And that's ultimately where the rubber hits the road for me. Um, I'm a bariatric surgeon, so my patients really have to work uh, quite literally their, their behinds off in order to get to the OR even. And um, I don't think it's right for those folks to um, face predictable delays as they receive their care in the OR. And they often do. And sometimes we're pushed even from our scheduled elective cases during the day into after hours as a result of these delays. When there's a crew working together that may not work together all the time, uh, may be distracted by being called away to call cases or emergencies. So for all of those reasons, I really think that surgeons being involved in improving the efficiency of the OR is actually really essential to the very function of our work. So can I ask you, do you think surgeons sometimes inhibit the work happening? <laughs> uh, yes, most definitely. And I can say that I am one of those inhibitors sometimes too. Uh, so let me explain how. I think as a surgeon, you're not really trained to think in a systematic way necessarily. And you're not definitely not trained to think in a business mindset. In fact, in the U.S., where I practice um, in the Midwest, uh, I would say I've never had any interaction with the finances or the business behind medicine ever. Um, I think some of that's intentional. There's a lot to know about being a surgeon and being a provider and uh, not necessarily focusing on, on the finances. But at the same time, I think what that costs is surgeons and physicians really don't understand um, how to be efficient even and don't even have a chance to participate in a way that could make the process better. Um, I think a lot of times we have this perception as surgeons that it's us versus them. <laughs> There's a lot of siloing in medicine. I'm sure uh, that's been discussed quite a bit here on this podcast too. Um, but there's a lot of us versus them mentality, which isn't super helpful. And instead of it, of us seeing it as us versus the problem and the problem being whatever limits us from providing the best care that we can and to providing the best access to that care that we can. I, I love what you're saying because uh, I think, um, well, we can, we can maybe talk about it. Um, the language of working in a hospital of dealing with not just the finance, but the patient care, the, the all-round care of, of a, a patient-centric delivery of something. So let's call it the product. So that language, if uh, people think you need an MBA, do you think you need to have an MBA to talk finance in a hospital? I'm sure it does help. In fact, I've been looking into getting one myself, so <laughs> I can't say... <laughs> I can't I think that. it doesn't hurt. You know, it, it, think of it this way. When you went through medical school, you uh, there was a fire hose of information coming at you at all times and through residency and through all of training. And even after residency, I feel like I've learned more in the past year and a half after fellowship than probably in the rest of it combined uh, yeah. when, when you're actually doing it in practice. But there's an entire language and terminology that you learn throughout this process. Um, nobody can say appendicitis right until they get to be a, a doctor, right? And nobody can, uh, or hydronitis supertiva 
or, you know, there's, there is a language associated with it. And there's certainly a context associated with it. And I think the same goes for business and the same goes for some of these operational efficiencies that um, really feel foreign to many healthcare providers and especially surgeons, even though we are very greatly affected by them on a regular basis. So do I think you need an MBA? Certainly not. Um, but I do think that becoming familiar with some of the terminology and asking questions and asking to be part of groups that make these decisions definitely helps um, helps us directly. So, you know, um, uh, you make me smile because demystifying the mystical, <laughs> that. because you're right, because, um, uh, for example, we, this is a robotic podcast. So, you know, you know, the outlay, the capital outlay for mm -hmm. robotic technologies, training, etc. It's quite significant. And we've spent, I spent years writing business plans and financial plans and team plans to try and, you know, get this technology in, you know, to be disruptive in the, mm -hmm. in the you know, that you and I both work in. So when it comes to this language of demystifying what was, what's going on, as you rightly say in bariatrics, you had some serious challenges at the beginning of the life of laparoscopy and bariatrics and now obviously robotics and bariatrics. Do you want to, do you want to just tell me a little about the history and how you guys have got there? Oh yeah. That's uh, that's a really fascinating field actually um, because in bariatrics, so bariatrics as an idea has been around for, for forever and the practice of bariatric surgery really is a bit honestly in its infancy. There was open surgery that was done in the eighties and nineties that was largely bypasses rather than sleeves. In fact, the first approval of a sleeve, gastric sleeve as a bariatric surgeon in the US by an insurance company was in 2009. So that's less than 15 years ago, right? So this process is in its infancy of us really doing minimally invasive bariatric surgery. And it's actually the, the fastest growing subdivision of uh, surgery in robotics interestingly enough. So in the US, it's the fastest growing field, um, which, which isn't surprising because there's such a huge application and benefit there. Um, but you're right, there's, there's a lot of honestly, misconception in the public and even with other providers that that bariatric surgeries are unsafe, because what's in everybody's mind is those big open cases that were done in the 80s and 90s with patients having really difficult post op recovery, they were in the hospital for a week at a time, they maybe had higher rates of complications, certainly more pain, certainly more difficult difficulty recovering afterwards, and then very variable access to follow-up. And so a lot of folks had nutritional mal uh, malnutrition, nutritional deficiencies, uh, dehydration, other kinds of complications that really went unmitigated. The field of bariatrics has luckily changed drastically <laughs> since that time, uh, honestly, to the point where these are some of the safest elective surgeries that are done, period, in the U.S. And that's in part because of MISQIP standards through um, through the ASMBS and IFSO, which are two of our professional societies that really put together a lot of certification and training and quality and standards and, and just put together a phenomenal amount of work, uh, the thousands of surgeons and, and programs that participate into making uh, surgery align with technology, align with patient outcomes and benefit. So it's it's a pretty interesting history and certainly one that keeps keeps advancing. Well, you're very eloquent there with your specialty of bariatrics, but it, where I work, the bariatric surgeons just get all the good kit. That's <laughs> the best. <laughs> well, thank because, you. Because, because the hospital staff are generally most worried about your patients you know, the best table, the best equipment, you know, the best OR. What can I say? You know, I'm just a jealous urologist. What can I say? 
<laughs> I would say that is not always the case here. Um, so in our program here, um, I'm, I'm a surgeon at the at Mercy, Iowa City. It's a smaller community hospital in Iowa. And uh, we actually, so the acquisition of the XI Da Vinci robot was actually part of my hire. And I actually started our robotic surgery program here. So I'm very involved in uh, sort of when you're talking about creating a business plan to introduce robotics and certainly to create a team that's well-trained and create metrics around that and to create um, excitement in the entire community of providers and administrators that we have in the hospital, um, that's not necessarily obviously tied to bariatric surgery, <laughs> nor to any piece of technology. There's still an uphill battle, and especially in areas that may not be the fanciest academic center in town or the biggest hospital system network uh, in town. So there's a lot of room for growth here as well in the U.S. So, so um, I, I, I use this word democratizing surgery because I think technology can allow everybody to have a quality operation wherever they may live and work around the world. And so if you took the system you've currently got, cost effective, I'm sure it's cost effective and clinically effective. Could you supplant that in different countries around the world? Do you think it would work? Certainly. You know, if you can do it in suburban or rural Iowa, I think you can do it elsewhere as well. <laughs> and let's certainly, certainly, exactly. You know, rural Iowa is not that far apart from rural anywhere else in many ways. So certainly. And let me explain to you also something, actually a story that um, I heard from a patient. And yep. this was one of the key motivating, one of our goals was to enable robotic surgery to be able to be done 24 seven. So around the clock, whether it's a call surgery, um, whether it's midnight on a Friday night, or whether it's a scheduled case at eight o'clock um, or 7.30, 7.30 in the morning on a Tuesday. And one of the reasons, so one of my patient's uh, daughters actually had surgery and she had it over the weekend and she was telling me the story in clinic and she said, man, I really wish I had come to Mercy because uh, you guys have robotic surgery and I wish she had been able to get the care regardless of the time she showed up to the hospital. So when you're talking about that democratization of, of access to resources and the tools that you use to accomplish the job, if the best tool is a robot then by, by gosh darn, I will make that available to my patients 24 seven if I possibly can, because somebody should not have a lower quality of surgery at you know eight o'clock at night on a Friday than they would at eight o'clock in the morning that Friday. That doesn't make any sense, right? If we have the, the resources and ability to do that. So certainly I think there is a very interesting um, case in terms of quality, but quality is usually tied to money, right? Higher quality means less likelihood of complication. Higher quality means everybody in the room knows what they're doing and why. Higher quality typically actually leads to lower cost. And so that's really the key in terms of democratizing care that aligns cost with quality. So yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, so tell me, in terms of training in your specialty, and I, I don't just mean training the surgeon on the console and you know, in the surgery, I'm talking about the team training process. What did you bring to the new hospital when you came, when you were hired in terms of team training? So I will say that actually that was probably one of the areas that I failed the most as a surgeon. And I'll tell you why, because I wanted to be involved hands-on all the time. I showed up to cases an hour early. I was trying to schedule all these trainings for staff 
And staff got really annoyed at me. Um, I overheard staff in, in our locker room, for instance, complaining and telling each other, I just, I don't want to be in that room. I don't want to do robotics. It's really, uh, you know, annoying. I don't want to learn it. So actually taking a moment to pause and talk to some of the, the surgical techs and the circulators and the staff in the OR and find out how do they want to be trained? What would be helpful? What are the ways that you can actually stand back a little bit as a surgeon and not be overbearing and not be, um, you know, again, this is a team approach. We're not robots <laughs> uh, and we're not dictators. Speak for yourself. I, am. <laughs> I love it. Well, but that's the issue with surgeons, right? We're all type A. We are all, we all think we know best. We all, we all think we know how to do everything. And uh, to be honest, I actually engaged our reps, uh, the representatives of Intuitive, which makes the XI robot that we have. They have a fantastic education platform. And so do many of the companies that actually produce these kinds of tools. So I actually went to administration and asked if they could be more involved in the training and if they could actually lead alongside us in a robotic steering committee so that we could develop ways where it didn't seem like the surgeons were, were kind of implementing their way. Um, but that this was more of a community approach to training. And that was received a lot better. So that that for me was a big learning curve, but we did within, uh, let's see here, within eight months, within nine months, we had 24 seven access to the robot because everybody was trained on using it. And uh, with training, do you think you should continue uh, developing your, your team or how do you, what is your view on that? Most certainly. So we've run across, for instance, where uh, not every, not all of the staff use the robot on a regular basis. And so especially if we're doing 24-7 coverage, that, that requires regular training. So we, we actually recently implemented a quarterly training protocol. And besides that, we also invite all of our staff, all of our, especially our newer staff, the travelers and so forth, to do that when they onboard. And we do have dedicated support from our robotic representatives so that they can actually support. Um, and I also offer to be there. And some of the other surgeons have gotten involved in the training process as well. Um, I'm happy to report we even have a surgeon who's actually training on the robot as well. And he he has not done robotic surgery in the past. So it really makes an impact when you create continuous resources that aren't a one, one and done, that aren't a one size fits all, that are available for people to ask what they consider to be the dumb questions in a safe environment, or even just to recap myself. Um, I've done quite a bit of training as, as an attending myself, going to um, intuitive headquarters and other training sessions. Uh, I've been involved in training residents um, on a uh, on a national level through Sages and, and Intuitive as well. I just really think this, obviously learning is a continuous process. We can't possibly know it all ever. So yes, absolutely. I, I believe continuous very, education is key. Very, very humble of you to say that. The, 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 um, so that. That's the upside. Now, what about the downside? So let's say yeah, when you're picking your cases, uh, surely there's got to be a time you're going, that cannot be done minimally invasively. Do you ever have those scenarios? And then if you do, who deals with those cases? Yes, certainly. So there are cases um, for the bariatric cases uh, in general, those are all done minimally invasive. I have yet to have one that was not capable of being done that way. Uh, but I remember for instance, in fellowship, we had a conversion of a VBG, which is a type of bypass that was done in mostly in the eighties as well, not really since then. Um, to a ruin Y gastric bypass. And that was a 12 hour long case in which three attendings as well as myself ended up participating. And we did convert that to an open procedure um, because there's only so much safe dissection that could be done laparoscopically. 
Um, I do think that the conversion between what can be done laparoscopically to what can be done robotically is different. Um, you have angles of motion and you have visualization and other tool use that is enabled more on the robotic platform, especially for foregut and pelvic cases uh, than laparoscopically. So I do think that using the robot actually enables you to do more complicated surgery and keep it minimally invasive. But there are reasons to convert, um, you know, bleeding that can't be controlled, a person who can't uh, can't tolerate insufflation, for instance, or simply if you have a one centimeter umbilical hernia, is that really going to be something that you you do minimally invasive? Maybe not. If you can if you can accomplish a good repair open uh, with a, essentially one smaller incision than you would three or four otherwise. So yes, there are, and I do think it absolutely depends on surgeon ability surgeon preference, uh, what the team capabilities are, certainly what time of the day and what resources are available to you. If you're not a 24 uh, seven robotic facility, then obviously you're not gonna be doing your call cases that way. Sure. But I do think like, I love that phrase that you use that uh, democracy of access and that democracy of tool selection. I do think that is a very interesting thing to consider as a group, as a hospital system, as a hospital or surgical you know, facility to determine what kinds of resources you want available to your patients and whether you want those available 24-7 or not. Oh, amazing. Are you sure you're not a lawyer? You're, you're, you're very detailed answers here. Yeah? <laughs> no, no, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Thank you. I've thought about it a lot, so thank you. <laughs> so tell me, um, uh, in terms of, you've talked a lot, we've talked a lot about technical things, but actually, let's talk about you. So you're on your journey to get to where you've got to there are going to be highs and lows and all of my colleagues I've spoken to so far I've asked them the same questions so um what do you do to look after yourself when you're not working and operating and doing the things you do this is such an insightful question because many surgeons especially do not take care of themselves very well. We are very good at pouring everything about ourselves into our work and not necessarily leaving anything for the remainder of our lives. Um, I will say I was very much blinded during residency and fellowship. I had a, a difficult time. I always thought it was very consuming to me and did not really pursue my hobbies, did not really uh, have escape hatches that um, to go to. That changed very much for me when I became an attending. I realized, oh my gosh, I'm not on call all the time. <laughs> and uh, when clinic is over, it's over. I don't have to take things home with me necessarily. And I could, could complete my cases. And as long as they went well, that was that was the end of the day. And to be honest with you, I actually took up some activities like golfing <laughs> and started going on hour long walks with my dog every day in the woods. You know, So there's been some really fantastic things. Um, but I will say one maybe unexpected side effect of this is it opened up a little bit of a Pandora's box for me about the question of who am I and what am I interested in? Because certainly surgery and bariatrics is very consuming and is very interesting, but maybe even these interests lead me down paths I would have never thought of before. So it's been kind of an exploration, honestly, of um, who, who am I at this point? And I think a lot of folks who transition from training to practice probably go through that, that same process. Yeah. Well, existential question like that. I mean, <laughs> many, a, many a smart individual, you know, thinks about those sort of things. What, hopefully not while you're operating, though. When you're operating, you're looking after the patient, right? So 
Exactly. When you're operating, I think that's the most, uh, interestingly enough, I think it's the combination of the most calm and the most focused that you can ever possibly feel. I don't think there's anything quite to compare to being able to do a case. It's like being the conductor of an orchestra, maybe, maybe something like that. But oh, that, yeah, yeah. And, and can I just ask you, so um, we live in a, a world that's got plenty of balance to it and imbalance, right? There's both. So we have in the UK, uh, we have, I, a lot of my colleagues are female. And I don't know if you saw or heard recently, uh, there was a, um, an article in one of the major newspapers talking about the difficulties women in surgery have. One in three women in surgery, this is quoted from the Guardian newspaper a few months ago in the UK, one in three women in surgery have un, un, um, uh, unwanted, um, I'm trying to put this politely to you, uh, they get many of their male colleagues behave with them in inappropriate ways. Certainly. How would you, how do you, how, you I'm not, I don't know if you, this has happened to you or not, but if it did, how would you manage that? What would you do? And how, and how, what advice would you give a younger colleague of ours who's having this trouble? Let's say a resident or a fellow. In the yeah. This is a, so this is a fantastic topic because it is not really addressed very often. It is extremely common. I think that one in three statistic is low. I think it's higher than that. Uh, certainly I have experienced it myself. I don't know a female resident or attending or fellow that has not. Um, and I have seen it happen to others as well. I have seen it happen to men, by the way, too. So I don't think this is unique to how women are treated. I think it's also, it honestly, it's a differential throughout your training process, especially of authority. And when people are under somebody else's authority, um, that creates a power dynamic that um, may, in some cases, be abused. Um, that is not the only scenario in which this happens, but that certainly is a little bit more ripe of a situation for, for failure than others. Uh, there are a few ways. I think it is difficult to treat a systematic problem on an individual level. <laughs> so uh, when this happens a, on a one-on-one, -on -one, um, certainly the person who is the trainee will be at a disadvantage in reporting and in gathering uh, support in that situation. Um you know, from my own experience in this, in the situations this has happened, you actually really do a mental calculation of what will it cost me to report? What will it cost me to say anything about this? And oftentimes the calculation is it's not worth it, which is not the kind of approach that I, I want, not the kind of approach I want to encourage other women to have. But I think that to create a different approach, it actually takes a systemic solution rather than putting all the blame on that one individual to report and fix the problem when they may not have any authority to do so. So I don't have an answer to this very complicated problem. <laughs> I wish I did. <laughs> Thank you for being so honest, because um, this happens so happens too often. It shouldn't happen. And it ha as you said, it happens to men and women. Um, and maybe these sorts of forum are the ones where we can talk about them a bit more. And I, I'm certainly an advocate of trying to change the system you know, in the process rather than, as you said, blame it, get the individual. We used to call them whistleblowers in the old days, right? And whistleblowers right. Right. lost their jobs all the time, you know. So, but yeah. But look, um, that, that, that was, that, uh, let's go back to what we were talking about. Thank you for being so honest. and, and of being, course. The, the, um, uh, maybe more women like you 
in the top positions can be more helpful. <laughs> well, you know, I do think there's there's something to that, Professor Patel, which is um, it's hard to be vocal when you see yourself in the minority at all levels, uh, yep. whether that's training, which is currently undergoing a big shift towards more women in surgery. But even in my class, for instance, my class of five residents, I was the only female. So it's still, we're still not the majority. We're still not, not equal, nothing, nothing close. And in subspecialties like bariatrics, it's under 20% women still, for instance, um, in orthopedic surgery, I believe it's under 7% of practicing orthopedic surgeons. So, you know, it's, it's, and that's in the U.S. I'm not sure exactly what the global statistics are. They're actually usually better than in the U.S., but uh, in the U.S., it is definitely a, a prevalent um circumstance. I think there's, there is work to be done both by men and women here. I think promoting each other, um, showing up as supporters and as allies, if somebody were to report something to me, I would take it very seriously. And that I did demonstrate that as a resident and as a fellow, actually, um, when, when those situations occurred. And I think being that person that people can go to and trust and who will actually do something about it rather than just saying, oh, be quiet. Don't, don't worry about it. Don't put yourself at risk of reporting. And uh, then promoting women into positions of leadership. I don't mean promoting women um, over men who are also qualified, but I mean elevating qualified women. There are plenty of women out there that are extremely qualified to be in, in leadership positions. And that needs to be actively addressed. That needs to be actively promoted. Finding a balance, right, is the, is the key. And I would also say finding kindness for each other. That's also important. Uh, I'm sure a bit more kindness will help alleviate a lot of these things. People are just not kind to each other. Considering we're in a caring profession, uh, it's amazing <laughs> how unkind we can be to each other. I mean, I, you, you're right. You're right. But it's, look, uh, it's a good point. It's a good, honestly, and Dr. Patel, I would also like to say um, you bring up something that to me is quite personal because I think when we're talking about, um, let me just pull this back to the OR inefficiency that you mentioned earlier. When we make things inefficient, when we make things difficult for each other and as a process or as a system, I think we are really setting each other up to fail in our relationships with each other too. Because if we as surgeons are frustrated, uh, we're not the type of people to keep ourselves super quiet and chill through all situations. I know this personally, um, but nobody in the OR is, nobody in the clinic is. And when we are dealing, like you said, in a caring profession, there are things we can do to make our work environments better for ourselves and for each other. And so I think addressing some of those inefficiencies and some of the things that burn out staff actually can make us better at how we treat or, treat each other and also better at our jobs. Wow, yes, incredible. I, you, you've summarized it well. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure, a real delight to talk to you. Um, uh, so. Dr. Maria Ilikova uh, from the Global Robotic Assisted Surgery Podcast. I'm Professor Tandra Patel. I hope you enjoyed this evening and just remember, be a little bit extra kind to your colleagues tomorrow morning. <laughs> and to yourself. Thank you so much, Dr. Patel. What a wonderful time with you. Thank you. Take care. You too. Thank you for listening to the Global Robotic Assisted Surgery Podcast, or GRASP for short. Please subscribe to be updated with all of our new podcasts coming out. If you would like to learn more about robotic assisted surgery, please go to www.roboticsurgerypodcast.com.